One of the reasons we both like Hanna-Barbera, and I think we, we're both sort of naturally drawn to it, I think there's a, there's a definite nostalgia thing that goes on. But yep, I think yep. it's also, there's a sort of fast and loose storytelling that happens in Hanna-Barbera that's quite brutal. Yeah. That's quite enjoyable. But I also, when I was thinking about this, I remembered something that I said a little while ago which I think might be why Scooby-Doo was on our kind of to-do list. Can you, can you remember this when I was going on and on about I think, Scooby-Doo? I think you mean our Scooby to-do list. Our Scooby to-do list. Um, one of the very many reasons Scooby-Doo is fun is it is quite, you can play with the name. Yeah. yeah. Which was, I was thinking about horror. Yes. A lot. And I was trying to work out, I couldn't work out why in a detective drama, if you get a even if you get a sort of first person perspective of someone stabbing somebody and then you get quite a brutal murder and then you get a dead body it's not frightening and you don't get jump scares in quite the same way as you would in a horror film Mm. and i was saying that it's to do with the subjective position of the viewer so in a horror film you're generally you generally experience the whole film from the perspective of victim but in a detective drama like a cop show you generally experience the whole thing from the perspective of detective so there's this this passive viewer role and this active viewer role and I was trying to think of a show or a story in which you get both of those combined and I was saying well if if you did that'd be the ultimate postmodern um kind of thriller and it's Mm. Scooby-Doo of course it's Scooby-Doo because you have those multiple um kind of subjects experiencing the whole thing so you've got Velma Daphne and Fred who I'm sure we will talk about in great detail <laughs> who are that who are active detectives or, or or at the very least they're they're actively kind of pursuing something or combating something and then you've got Shaggy and Scooby who are pretty much always I would say well there are exceptions they're generally victims except when they're sort of doing something madcap and then they suddenly hop out of that role. But when you're watching that programme, you have those two perspectives. And, and that's why it functions both as a kind of ghost story and as a detective thing and a sort of road trip thing as well. There's kind of three genres, but, I, but, but ghost story and detective. Um, and so you experience it from both of those subject positions. Am I overthinking that? And secondly, crucially, our question scooby-doo where are you those are my two questions for you i think something i want to jump on straight away Mm -hmm. on your second question Mm -hmm. it wasn't until i was actually uh writing down today's episode title Mm -hmm. that i realized the title of the first series of Mm scooby-doo is not a question so the first series, 1969 yes. to 70, mm-hmm. was titled Scooby-Doo, comma, Where Are You? Exclamation <laughs> mark. And that was thoroughly exciting to me. <laughs> that is exciting. Does that change? Because the, 
Uh, there are what you mean across the different across those Scooby first shows. three classics because we're we're focusing right we're focusing just on those first three classic Scooby Doo series. Yes, but no, it it remains uh, Scooby Doo. Where are you? I don't think we're jumping ahead ever so slightly here, but I don't think you get a question mark in a Scooby Doo uh, show title until the two thousands. But I do think I think you're probably right. Um, but I do think that within those first few series, I think mm. people definitely go Scooby Doo. Yes. Where are you? As a question, I think Fred says it most. Yep, uh, Velma says it sometimes, and Daphne okay. too. Yeah, it's definitely a repeated question. Yes. But this is what I find immediately fascinating: that it feels so iconically like a question, that it is mm. a question. But what, from I mean, the outset, what... the show presents it as a statement. But it doesn't, I mean, that doesn't function as a statement to me no. at all. It doesn't work. No. I think that's just lazy punctuation. Perhaps. I think a question mark would look better on the title sequence anyway. Yeah, there's something ghostly. So they've just done it wrong. Mark. They've yeah. they've done it all wrong. Uh, now, there are questions in the original working titles. So I think it's worth backtracking slightly into the history of Scooby-Doo yes, here, right? Yes, definitely. Because it's complicated. It's really complicated. It, it is. It's very hard to grapple with. I find it very, I find it because there's so many iterations of when it's mm. being developed and, and once it's developed that are so sort of similar, but with wildly varying elements to them, that it's very overwhelming to try and work out exactly what's going on, which which feels like because it's such a sort of team thing. I think mm. is that fair to say that there's a lot of voices in there. Yes, and, and I think there's also an element of it It tries to hit so many demographics and targets. Mm. So it largely comes out of, A, the popularity of Hanna-Barbera, which you've mm. touched on. We both thoroughly enjoy Hanna-Barbera. Mm. I was thinking about this over the last few days, naturally. I've done nothing but think about mm. Scooby-Doo and Hanna-Barbera. Mm. But maybe more than any other um, company franchise cartoons in my childhood hannah barbera is like the sleeper hit of i loved so much hannah barbera stuff yes even though so much of it is uh riffing off itself or riffing off other things when i think back to what i really enjoyed growing up i enjoyed a bit of looney tunes but it was never really my thing it was the flintstones it was top cat it was the jetsons and it was scooby-doo and then even like the deep cuts one of my absolute favorites is space ghost and when they brought him back from the original sort of superhero-y side to do his weird talk show riff, Space Ghost Coast to Coast. I remember watching that when I was maybe like 10 and just I, thinking it was the most amazing meta thing. I've never heard of Space Ghost. You've probably told me about it before, but oh um, yeah. But I I need to know more, know more than the title to know that it's fabulous. I mean, Space it's, Ghost, yes, please. Yeah, it's, it's just so good. And then the what they did, they reinvented so much of what they were doing all the time in such simple ways. But then when they really stretched themselves, like things like Space Ghost, Space Ghost was drawn as if it was a live late night American talk show. And they would film segments with actual guests. I remember Mark Hamill doing one where a TV screen comes down and you get Space Ghost interviewing Mark Hamill. It had all of the trappings yeah. of normal late night tv but, very weird but that's part of the charm of hanna barbera yes. that throughout all the decades so much of what they've done was just 
what can we do? Yeah, let's give it a shot. Yeah. I think that's it. I think that's what I mean by sort of fast and loose and brutal storytelling is they definitely just threw out content and they didn't. Yes. Care. And the other aspect of that, which you sort of touched upon, is all of their characters, all of their storytelling is constantly very plastic, which is why you can get Scooby-Doo appearing in all these different series with different names and, and they feel very different and you can introduce these mm. characters and or just yeah all of their characters do like 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 um i'm gonna say i love wacky races wacky races is oh yes and and all of those not all of them but quite a lot of those characters have their own shows or or, mm. or numbers of shows i feel like dastardly and muttley there's the dastardly and muttley show there's also catch the pigeon love catch the pigeon there's also <laughs> uh wacky races it's strange that none of that is confusing <laughs> as a child yeah you never stop because but i think because the characters are so sort of blunt they're such blunt tropes that mm. they can survive that they can survive kind of like switching over into different things because you completely understand who they are and so many of their shows this is something i was thinking about a lot is um oh there's so much this is it's such an overwhelming topic excuse me there's so much i want to say um is that it's not they're not shows designed for adult audiences they feel very much like they respond to that sort of a sort of frenetic childish energy and although so, this is and i i disagree with this because this mm -hmm. is where hannah barbera really gets their strength you take something like the flintstones mm -hmm. which what until the simpsons was like the biggest uh, animated series that was a prime time tv show that wasn't saturday yeah, morning kids yeah. show that was here is your comedy to the extent that i can't remember what the show is but flintstones is definitely just riffing on a popular show from the 60s <laughs> to yeah. the extent that if i remember right the guy who created the show that simpsons most clearly riffs off almost tried to take them to court mm -hmm. and was sort of talked out of it on the pretense of you don't want to be the guy who sees the flintstones yeah it was the the, the honeymooners uh, yeah so uh, i think that's very true they they do they function like sitcoms like even the um sort of canned laughter tracks yeah it's very strange i don't know why it works and they definitely were very happy about going that works let's take that but i guess i guess what i meant by I, and i do agree with you but i think flintstones is is slightly more sophisticated in its storytelling and and it, its characters are do it, it, it is closer to the simpsons and its characters are more adult in a way mm. but the the thing that i sort of so i did a lot of reading about scooby-doo and you you sort of google in the right places scooby-doo you get a lot of essays that are trying to fathom what scooby-doo is and they generally start with um they generally start with some sense of the writer distancing themselves from scooby-doo so they'll generally start mm. with obviously we all know scooby-doo is rubbish then they generally move on to however it has this enduring appeal. It's been going like so long. Um, I've got a list somewhere of like how many different series of it are, how many different iterations of it are, there are, how many films, I mean, whatever. And so then they sort of go into this kind of like meltdown of like, I think it's rubbish, um, but it's been going for so long. I liked it as a kid and now I watch it with my kids. Uh, I'm a bit confused. And I think that's what I mean by um, it, it appeals to a kind of childish imagination is that there's no pretense there within Scooby-Doo of this is a sophisticated um, bit of complex storytelling. 
in mm. part because of that constant repetition of essentially we are going to show you the same story every single week there's going to be mm. some kind of thematic that changes but other than that the same thing's going to happen and so when you get these kind of like these sort of pseudo essays going um so i've got one here everyone knows scooby-doo is the worst this is from a, uh, a book i want to read religion and popular culture in america from a chapter called adventure time and sacred history yes please um and I sort of, but that's such a frustrating sentence. Everyone knows Scooby Doo is the worst. It's not the worst. It's it's your success criteria. Uh, it doesn't measure up to the success criteria that you're applying to it. But actually, this is interesting because I'm and everything you're saying frustrates me a bit. I'm not sure whether I agree with anything that you're reading. No, oh, no, I don't. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not saying that I agree with them at all. Yeah, no, that, that's what I'm saying. I'm I'm not sure I, I agree with anything that you're mm. finding out there because I, I'm I don't think Scooby Doo is particularly repetitive it's got some tropes but i feel like across all the episodes in the first few seasons but then especially across the different shows they are constantly taking the same core concept and reinventing it in a very hanna-barbera way of let's make it the same but different mm. to such an extent that i think that's part of its enduring appeal i think that's, I think that's slightly disingenuous because i do think i mean you ask anyone the plot of scooby-doo they're going to tell you we think it's a ghost then we gather some clues it's not actually a ghost it's an old white man who's trying to make but, some money but then that's such okay. a yeah. misconception because in those first three series in those first three series there is a lot of that but even then the tropes that are so tropey about scooby-doo across the first three seasons there's not actually all that much of it like velma losing her glasses whenever anyone can't find their glasses all i hear in my head is my glasses i can't see without my glasses and just see velma groping around on the floor trying to find them except if i'm right in those first few seasons it only happens a handful of times and i across the i I think it's maybe 40 episodes and i and actually no not many people say meddling kids no, no, it, it doesn't develop until sometime later. And then you think about this whole idea of unmasking the villain. They start playing on that relatively early on. They started to understand that they couldn't keep to the same formula. So across the different show reinventions where you get elements of fracturing the cast, which I think happens maybe in the late 70s, where it becomes, because it was starting to get stale, you get Scooby and Scrappy-Doo and Shaggy, and then they throw in Daphne into the mix. And they start twisting all these things. And during those years, it becomes a bit more adventurous and a bit more familiar to shows, maybe a little bit more like Johnny Quest. And then you get like a whole run of let's have actual monsters, which was some of the stuff popping up in uh, Scooby and Scrappy, but Mm. especially into the 80s and 90s and they start doing crossover stuff, a lot more of that becomes let's play with the meta texture of what we're presenting and start doing actual creatures or sometimes it's actual creatures and there's still elements of people being unmasked and there's bait and switches. It's one of the things I find fascinating about a lot of the Scooby reading I've been doing is that there seems to be such a thing of people presenting Scooby-Doo as incredibly formulaic and repetitive, Mm. but then any observation of relatively short-lived seasons of Scooby-Doo, because then none of them are particularly long, any observations of it, you go, this is vastly different to the other ones. There is so much variation. And I think maybe that starts to get at part of why Scooby-Doo is popular, because everyone is able to take it from... I remember watching this section, this slice of Scooby-Doo growing up. Mm -hmm. And there are things that are so iconic about it Mm -hmm. 
that when I see them repeated in new ones, I'm immediately comfortable enough to sort of engage in this, but I'm disassociating from this kid's show enough that I'm also not paying attention to the fact that it's very different from what I watched when I was growing up. Mm. And it creates this really weird middle ground of all of this is familiar, all of this is different. So it stays constantly fresh, but constantly nostalgic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do agree. I wrote a list of all the tropes that I thought were Scooby-Doo tropes that I think uh, that I think appear in those first two series. Can and we I... play Scooby-Doo trope bingo? We, yes, I think we can. How many tropes have you written? Nine. Okay, okay. Have you got Scooby one a Scooby snack? I've got Scooby snacks. Okay, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take that. Yeah. Uh, gang splitting up? I haven't got that, no. Oh, that's a, that's a good one. That is a good one. Um, have I'm you got... Down, you know me, I want a full list now. Yeah, you want a full list. <laughs> have, have you got Velma losing her glasses? No, I haven't got that. This is exciting. Um, a the gang's vehicle breaking down. See, this is what's fun. There are so many tro- tropes. You've you've got meddling kids, I'm sure. I haven't got meddling kids actually. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is a strange list. I'm really losing at this game. Okay. Um, unmasking generally. No, I haven't got. I haven't got the classics. I think I was like. I was trying to. I no, I'm not going to apologise. I've got just Daphne in danger. No, I haven't got that. Fred building an invention or a trap. No, I haven't got that. The sort of researching um, in a book. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh god. Uh, as well. Come on, just keep going. I'll how about the scene. corridor chase scenes? I've got. Yes, I've got that. Okay. Um, the theme song. No, I haven't got that. Uh, okay um scooby and shaggy coming across the creature in the first like five minutes or so and telling the rest of the gang hey guys this really strange thing happened and they're all like what no nonsense i've got that i've written that down as it's like a pantomime scooby sees the monster but when everyone looks it's gone yep yep cool um a spooky location no i haven't got that i can i add something to that though that i i do sort of want to talk about yes i just watched one which was a scottish one from series three it's called mctavish monster something something obviously yeah. it's got the lock, lock this monster in um the worst scottish accents you've ever heard <laughs> so so worth watching just for that that there is a kind of um like the thematics sometimes are to do with different geographical locations Yes. And sometimes that's a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. There's a lot of so, kind of voodoo type that, that and sort of African masks and sort of, or not even African, sort of Haitian, I was, I'm going to say Haitian voodoo. I don't know whether that's a thing, but I think in Scooby Doo it's a thing. Isn't that quite a New Orleans trope though? Like not, not no, in any. I, I, that I, can't, I can't speak to the um, potentially complicated history of appropriation with it potentially mm. but i feel like that is something that i see in all sorts of media in certain parts of america that scooby definitely touches on in a way that isn't treated at least from what i see as particularly negatively yeah. i think i think it's i think i would be uncomfortable if we didn't mention that that's all because yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it, occasionally it gets slightly uncomfortable but also just just generally that 
there's this kind of like so our theme it's it's almost like doing a themed party or something like that when the you know mm. like what's the theme for the prom gonna be we're gonna do scottish we're gonna do scottish yeah. episode we do it feels a bit like that um yeah but this so, scottish definitely definitely what are the tropes did you list uh so i had i had chase scenes i had rubbish hiding so like hiding yep. but in a way that's sort of comical I had the pantomime thing. I had um, some of these are scrappy do ones, so I won't talk about them. The the starting every word with R thing that Scooby Doo does, um, and starting every sentence with like that Shaggy does. It's more a motif, I suppose. Scooby mm. snacks. Um, <laughs> Fred saying looks like we got ourselves a mystery that I love. Uh, somebody yep. saying Scooby Doo, where are you? Yes. Um, after the unmasking, after everything's happened something supernatural appearing to still happen but then it turns out it's scooby who's got inside the mask yes. or whatever yeah, that's quite a fun one um i thought i had a another one then maybe that's maybe that's all of them let's think i know there are definitely more there are definitely more yeah but this I, is the thing so many of these don't actually appear very often but they are also iconic i feel like a big one for me which i haven't written down here is velma <laughs> kneeling down uh putting her fingers in some kind of substance rubbing it between her fingers and going <laughs> and then yep. saying either paint or some kind of chemical i feel mm. like that's a definite one it's it's just it's so full of these tropes mm -hmm. and I, I think as as we just saw from my inability to guess most of what you put on there and your inability to mention most of what feels like the really obvious ones mm -hmm. everyone takes different things away from it it's so packed i think that first episode of scooby-doo what a night for a night feels like it hits so many of those initial markers mm -hmm. it, like it's so easy to find online and just watch and it sets up a lot of what's there including a few weird references i love the bit where shaggy climbs up a ladder to try to get into a window and daphne i believe just has this really casual mention of like oh yeah he's the best gymnast in school or something <laughs> and it's like what is that a shaggy trope so apparently this, so this is something that i want to talk about now i wonder if i can find the i'm just going to leave through this um is so this this is one article that I'm sort of fascinated by that is very self-conscious. Like all these articles that I'm talking about definitely fall into a kind of Scooby-Doo is my guilty pleasure and now I'm going to justify why. Wow. Um, and this one is like a sort of Jack Kerouac kind of like sort of almost kind of um, gonzo journalism thing of like there's a sort of, it was written in 1993, but it, there's a sort of beat to it. There's a sort of rhythm to it. And yeah. it's very much about Scooby-Doo is completely the commodification of kind of radical lifestyles and all of this. And it's a bit like, oh, I'm down. Um, but there's a really, yeah, here we go. I really like this quote. <laughs> uh, Scooby-Doo and his comrades don't seem to come from anywhere and don't really seem to be heading for anywhere in particular either. I really yeah. like that. That's, that's sort of, it's quite a hard trick to pull off and it not feel like an absence, I think. And it doesn't, and it wasn't until I read that that I thought, oh yeah. Like, and I think part of that comes from what you were touching on earlier of like, there seemed to have been so many iterations before it even hit the air of what it was going to be. And it seems to mm. pull from it. And maybe that's why it has so many tropes in it. It pulls from so many new tropes. Um, yeah. That it's very intertextual before it even starts. And that's why, you know, they don't have a past and they don't have a future because there's such, there's such pure kind of Joseph Campbell 
like fictional characters that they exist yeah. in, in a very in a, in a very two-dimensional form but it's very satisfying it's not it's not kind of like oh these characters aren't fully formed it's like oh these these are just sort of like figures that run around and do this stuff and it's very entertaining um i so the you probably know this already but the the one that everyone seems to talk about is the many loves of Dobie gillis yeah about this yeah now i watched it so this is meant to be what it's based on or the characters are based on i watched a bit of it all i can see is that there's one bloke with a dodgy goatee beard and that seems to be where shaggy comes from is his sort of speech pattern not very similar to shaggy's i mean i didn't watch much of it but i couldn't i couldn't see it like he was wearing a sort of loose t-shirt have you watched have you watched Hmm. it he's wearing a sort of i've I've seen clips that's all yeah me too I, I couldn't I couldn't feel that there, but maybe I just need to watch more of it. Um, the Archer Show is another one up against the Hardy Boys. Also, so I was, I, the other one I thought, which nobody seems to mention, but I thought is definitely the Famous Five because it's two. Yes, boys so so there's there's a number of things going on here, and I think if if we backtrack slightly to the origins of Scooby Doo. Mm-hmm. Hanna-Barbera really grows out of this sort of riffing on other primetime shows. Yeah. And it's in those first uh, eight, nine years that we get the stuff that's really familiar to a lot of people, but has sort of faded into less popular culture now. So you've got Huckleberry Hound, Flintstones, Yogi Bear, Top Cat, Jetsons. Br- brilliant stuff that feels really lost to time now, like McGill- McGilla Gor- Gorilla, which is always so hard to say, and all of these brilliantly weird characters. But one of the key ones that I think pops up around the era is Johnny Quest, which was proper primetime show adventure and sort of epitomise the slightly more action-oriented end of uh, what Hanna-Barbera were doing. So you sort of developed with two strands. You've got the kind of riff on a sitcom primetime animated comedy, and then your action-oriented um, Herculoids, Moby Dick and the Mighty Mitor, yes. um, Birdman, Space Ghost, all of that stuff. There was some pushback at the time from the ever wonderful 60s overly conservative uh, media consumers saying it's sort of it's not okay that kids are being exposed to this much violence we need to turn it down we need something more fun which is where part of scooby-doo starts developing around the same time that hanna-barbera are booming you've also got filmation who were the other big animation company at the time and they've got things like uh, he-man and there was a Oz cartoon, all that sort of stuff. So they're still happily dabbling in uh, your action stuff. But what really booms for them is the Archie show, mm-hmm. which I love getting glimpses of. I've, I don't know, aside from when I was a kid, I don't know if I've actually sat down and watched any of the Archie show properly since. But it's just that weird sort of wholesome, wacky mm-hmm. uh, 60s cartoon. It's such a shame that slight tangent such a shame that the riverdale show is so far away from it even though it knowingly plays with what it's doing and is definitely completely insane at times there's something really fundamentally charming about the original archie setup so the archie show cartoon was uh archie and jughead and all the standard characters mostly archie jughead betty and veronica and jughead's dog called hot dog and when Hanna-Barbera were trying to figure out what to do next, what market to conquer, they were looking at the Archie show. 
and thinking that's definitely somewhere we can take it. And then they were looking at your uh, live action sitcom references and trying to meld what they could between the two. They ended up with the initial sort of draft of Scooby-Doo saying, okay, if we're not going to do action, then maybe we can have it be a bit more fun and be about a group of kids solving some mysteries. And then they added the dog. Isn't it initially also that they're a band? Yes, which is such a trope of yes. all of the Hanna-Barbera cartoons that follow it, yeah. but the, very much picking up the Archies as a band in the Archie show. Mm-hmm. So it's let's take all of these different bits that we know are popular, let's try and shove them into a package. And that package didn't get off the ground at first. I think they pitched it to CBS, and CBS said, no, we're not really interested, because this is too sort of scary for kids. But after a bit of reinvention, they'd added Scooby, and they'd played it up a little bit more. And I think part of it, what really works, is the character designs that by the time they reach that package that they did sell to CBS, Mm. there's so much that's gone into this that they pulled a bunch of the really good bits from these characters. There's there's something very distinct about each of them that Mm. doesn't really translate as well into a lot of the other Hanna-Barbera and Filmation cartoons that were following a similar pattern. Everyone else in those cartoons often feels a little bit more samey. But I think Fred, Belmer, Daphne and Shaggy all have very distinct physical personalities. They, I mean, apart from, I would say, Shaggy and Scooby are essentially the same character repeated. Yes, but one's a dog, so they're easy to tell apart. <laughs> they are easy to tell apart. But, but, they, but, but you say they all have very distinct characters, but they, they need each other to riff off, I think. If there was just yeah, one of them, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've got a friend. And I think there's there's a sort of similarity there, although they obviously take different roles. Yeah, and they they play off each other, and I think in those first season, the first season or two, they're very bland characters. Yeah, yeah. But th- there's there's a lot of play in there, and then the famous five is definitely also feeding into that. I think one of the original names for the shows was something like Mysteries Five. Yeah, there's no way they weren't yeah. intentionally riffing on all of these elements, but it's so complicated and that's woven into so much of sixties mm-hmm. animation culture. It's something you've it's a bit of a digression, but something you said just then made me think Daphne and Fred are the parents. There's a slight Yes, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Which is why it gets interesting uh in the late seventies, eighties, I can't remember which when they introduced Scrappy. In that when that ran for a, a couple seasons or something, in order to mix it up a little bit more, they threw Daphne in and Daphne very much becomes like babysitter to them. She's very much involved, but she's also looking after the other three mm. there's there's definitely a parental role in what they do for the team mm. so i think you know you reach that point uh when scooby-doo hits that what you've started with is wholesome 60s music band mm. you've injected famous five group go on a mystery hunt mm. you've said let's tackle horror as a different angle but make it fun for kids and i think a mm. crucial element to succeeding in that the reason why that works is that it's both calling to things like uh, Abbott and Costello and Frankenstein. Yeah, like completely playing on things like that that are familiar and feeding in, I can't remember. There's a definite sort of Bella Lugosi kind of ness to the monster. Oh yeah, completely. So they're definitely playing with things like that. And I think, uh, you know, they eventually cross over, but you've got things like the Adams family sort of vibe to the horror tinged in there where it's, it's creepy and it's kooky. 
and it's you know just sort of delightfully fun but it's so important that in those first couple seasons the villains always get unmasked because it enables them to strip back and say oh but it's not really a horror a really nice quote i found just before um we started recording that i hadn't come across in my research before carl sagan do you know this um the sort of astronomer scientist Mm. uh loved scooby-doo for a very ideological reason which was we need more shows like this that demonstrate that anything that people think is supernatural always has a scientific explanation. It's a better quote than that. But I I sort of love that, that he saw it as an educational um, thing. I think there's... um, Yeah. Oh, so much. The other things I want to talk about particularly, you said wholesome, and I think that's a really interesting word that I would like to look at a bit more. But I think there's also... There's a lot of ideological stuff going on in there. The one I want to pick out is sort of uh, generational, the sort of intergenerational aspect of the characters. <laughs> so let's do wholesome first, and maybe we'll remember to come back to that. Yeah. There is so this article that I was talking about is it's called Hannah Bar Bildung's Roman. So nice. Obviously I was going to read that. Um, it, it one of the things I think it's quite an angry sort of bitter piece of writing that's how I experience it and one of the things I think it's bitter and angry about is I think there are sort of elements of psychedelic and post-psychedelic culture mm. that are sort of co-opted and tamed so the van I think is definitely one of them yes the fact that it's called the mystery machine the fact that you still get, even though they they never function as a band, you get a sort of sense of it them being kind of on a a, a tour <laughs> because they've yep, got this yep. tour bus. Um, the what they wear, but also very specifically, I think um, this kind of trope that Scooby and Shaggy play into of stoner culture that still definitely in the in the later live action films is definitely played on. That is very strange. <laughs> and I think that that whole thing of like, you know, because 1969 is the year of Woodstock, right? I, 1969 is such an amazing year. Every like mm. every film that I love, I'll, I'll come to a point where I go, oh, yeah, obviously that came out in 1969. So many amazing things happened in 1969. And I think it's such a kind of turning point of, and I mean, I'm slightly talking about bum here because I don't really know, but you get this sense of like, um, was Woodstock was an amazing kind of cultural moment, but it was also very much to do with shirking responsibility. That's that whole kind of summer of love is is a is completely about um pleasure and mostly male pleasure, I'm gonna say, like the whole idea of free love, and also draft dodging and also responsibility dodging. And also you can only really do that if you feel sort of pretty comfortable and that things are gonna be okay if you just kind of take a year out of and take loads of drugs and go and listen to loads of music and that's such a i'm sort of fascinated by that as a cultural moment of like it's it's so often quite lazily framed as a countercultural or a radical movement but that actually is completely hedonistic and selfish and so anytime you commodify that which is what happens in scooby-doo with all these kind of psychedelic colors and whatever but it's actually packaged in a kind of quite a suburban way like the music is quite easy listening 
and like Fred with his cravat. <laughs> like this, we yeah. might come on to gender politics, but the gender politics are sort of um, fairly pedestrian. That people get really angry about that because they think you're taking something really kind of countercultural and, and radical and revolutionary and turning it into something commodified. And actually, that's quite an adolescent kind of argument. Like this, this article is a lot of it is about that Scooby-Doo sells this idea of eternal youth because they're kind of, because they're living this lifestyle, like, or even that Shaggy and Scooby are constantly consuming without any (laughs) consequences on that. They just eat these massive sandwiches and yet Shaggy is so skinny. Um, I don't know. And then you add into that this kind of, there's a definite play on stoner culture with Shaggy and Scooby um, and, and again, I think that's the, the sort of Hanna-Barbera thing of um, they really, it's a bit like, okay, this is what I thought. <laughs> this was my thought. You know how we're obsessed with Peter Pan? And mm-hmm. you know how we talk about that book is an author accidentally throwing his subconscious into a book without really realising what they've done. And there's mm. and it's sort of the most deeply Freudian text of here's here's all my kind of wants and desires and and everything that confuses me and everything that I'm worried about when I'm just putting it out through this metaphor of this child who will never grow up. I feel like Scooby-Doo does that culturally. It's kind of like a group of people just completely take all of this stuff that's going on socially and culturally in 1969. It goes through this sort of weird filter of this community of writers and producers and whoever was financing it and whatever. And what comes out the other end is this sort of collective, collective Freudianness, if that makes any sense at all, of like this is, this is just a, our subconscious dealing with what this cultural moment is, and it's come out as four kids and a dog running around and unmasking ghosts that aren't really ghosts. I don't know whether any of that makes any sense at all, but it's how I experience. It's how I experience Scooby Doo. The end. Thank you. Excellent TED talk. Yeah, no, it's it it definitely there's a lot of the 60s that feeds into the show. Mm. And it definitely leverages that. I, I think I I said wholesome because that's not content for a seven-year-old watching TV. That's not content mm. that the kids are actually engaging with. Mm when it comes to what is actually happening in the uh in in the actual show it is just a group of friends hanging out happening upon mysteries and fixing them usually with a number of laughs along the way that's got that sort of wholesome feel to it that i quite enjoy it makes me think we have a friend who has recently purchased a camper van and uh current global situation or not <laughs> we definitely decided that yes. we were going to uh spend our summer traveling the country with another friend which would make two guys and two girls and we'd get a pet get a and pet. we'd just solve mysteries solve there's this. something just so easily appealing about that setup even I, I think even when you remove that from the cultural narrative and nostalgia of Scooby-Doo, 
who wouldn't want to spend a summer with three of their friends and an entertaining animal in a van solving mysteries? It's the solving mysteries bit that really uh, seals that deal. Because I think, you know, even with the best of friends, a summer in a van isn't necessarily <laughs> the most entertaining. I think it's also, um, I used to have this game I used to play with a friend called um, the Lost Property Office game, where mm. it was just literally you thought of a list of things that you expected to play a much bigger part in your adult life than they do. So when do you ever go to a lost property office? Never. How often do they appear in children's shows? All the time. So that's why. Yeah. And, and mystery is definitely one of those. Like, I'm going to find a random clue and it's going to lead me somewhere to discover something. It's, yeah, it's yes. something I expected to happen an awful lot in my life and hasn't happened once, I don't think. I, well, I think we're both quite inclined towards mysteries, especially when they're a bit nonsense, which is why uh, some, sometimes in a work capacity, sometimes in a just day-to-day Here's something strange capacity. Occasionally, a question will fall into our laps. Not the not the philosophical sort, but an actual grounded. This is slightly strange, and we will both delve into online research to try and find an answer to it as quickly as we can. There's there's competition to that, but there's also a lot of here's a mystery. We're going to be the ones to crack it. Yeah, and I think this that's what this podcast is, right? Let's answer these questions. Yes. It's, yeah. Um, Okay, so I feel like I, I didn't really draw you on that theory, so I'm going to try another one. And this is the kind of generational thing, and this is related. So one of the tropes that we haven't discussed is the, the, the meddling kids are meddling in the lives of a person, generally an older white man, who is trying to make money out of a situation. And as part of his scheme, he has to scare people away. But the other thing they meddle with, occasionally, not always, is the is whoever is already there trying to solve that mystery. So very often the police. And so and so again, I may be overthinking this, but there's a definite generational thing of um ousting the old guard that goes on in Scooby-Doo. So so there's these policemen and they're using their traditional methods and they haven't really got anywhere and they're a bit annoyed with these kids coming in thinking that they can sort it out, which is a detective trope, definitely. Of yes. like, you know, I, I'm, I'm Scotland Yard, I'm annoyed by UPI or Miss Marple or whoever, um, and yet you always come up with the goods and yet I never learn. And the next time you come along and do it, I'll still be annoyed, even though you're going to save my skin several times. And then at the same time, the other bit of the old guard is this kind of old white man who is trying to make money out of scaring people away. And it, to be fair, it's amazing how many situations they can think of where that might be useful, yes. generally smuggling or whatever. Do you, do you buy that as an idea? That, there's, that that's one of the motifs is like, is like make way for the new generation? And there's a and, and and in relation to the Woodstock thing, that would be a kind of like um, counter authoritarian. Yeah, completely. Yeah, like stiffs or the pigs or whatever. Like, um, yeah, the sort of revolutionary, so revolutionary take on that. Here's the complicated bit of it. I I buy that as a theory that ties together those thoughts. Mm. But I'm not sure how common that actually is in Scooby-Doo in terms of the uh, meddling with a third party of investigation. Because th this may be one of those cases where 
just the Scooby-Doo that we've consumed is very separate. It's it's one of the brilliant things about Scooby-Doo, right? That you would have, and I'm I'm trying to think ages now you would have grown up if you were watching any scooby-doo with reruns of the original shows plus the stuff going into the very early 90s definitely do you know something i I forgot to say this um that really surprised me was watching that very first episode recognizing the opening sequence as yes i definitely this definitely was still on tv in the 80s because particularly there's a very kind of Sort of weirdly animated bit where Scooby licks some like candy floss or bubble gum or yep. something off his face. Yeah, it was very stiff animation. I was like, yes, no, I know that. Yeah. Anyway, that's a digression. So I, so I think generationally, every generation is growing up with a compounding amount of Scooby Doo. You're not growing up with a new Scooby Doo. Mm. It's it's a larger wealth of it because those original seasons are on TV all the time. They're mm. still on TV. Mm. They were on TV all through me growing up. There are other bits of Scooby-Doo that very iconically are in my memory, but it's still those original seasons more than anything. I think they probably got a large portion of the airtime. So I wonder whether the Scooby-Doo that you were growing up with in a contemporary fashion and the compounded background. They they do come in and do the detective work, don't they? Yes, I'm, but I might, be, I might be straining this point. Yeah. I might be straining. I mean, point, I'm about to tell you how you're straining I, the point. I, I think, I, 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 I think part of it might be what we were saying about how there are tropes in Scooby Doo that feel more iconic because the repetition of those original seasons, the compounding nature of the way that people grow up with Scooby Doo, mm-hmm. means that you will have seen a lot of stuff repeatedly, and the way that kids watch TV, you don't mm-hmm. quite separate reruns and things that you've watched multiple times a day. I was talking, and I was talking about this the other day, and someone mentioned how uh, Cartoon Network and Boomerang would sometimes just show the same episodes of all of its shows through the day. I'm not sure how accurate this is, although it definitely happened. But the conversation we had gave the impression that it was like uh, the Boomerang channel when I was growing up would have like six hours of programming that they'd loop, what, four times. So all of that repetition and all of the way that we've come up with very different tropes of Scooby-Doo, I can't help but wonder whether getting in the way usurping an actual physical presence of uh, authority in the stories is actually a whole lot rarer. And then the larger reality of them taking its place and solving the mysteries on their own, I think doesn't hold up as well for me because it always comes out of the gang there by chance originally. It doesn't come from a starting point of, even though they're called... Uh, even though their van is called the Mystery Machine, and that's a thing they do, there isn't a whole lot, at least early on, of them rocking up and being like, ah, we've just been enlisted for this mystery, or we've been reading the local news and we want this mystery. There's a lot of... I just watched was definitely a mate of Velma's rang them up and went, come help me. Yes, that's in season three, right? But initially there's a lot of... we've uh, Our vehicle's broken down, there's a lot of we're happening to be looking at the newspaper and we come across this. So yeah, let's go do that. And there's some stuff where it's anecdotal of let's uh, have someone invite us. I know there's an episode in season three 
which is really interesting in terms of the popularity of Scooby-Doo. And I'm not sure whether today's the day to talk about it, but it's an episode that the TV show Supernatural, mm. uh, which is two brothers uh, fighting ghosts and demons and stuff. Excellent, excellent show that has got very wacky throughout its time. A couple years ago had an episode called Scooby Natural where the brothers get sucked into, and this is quite, you know, mature show they're you know blood and demons and pain and they get sucked into a season three episode of scooby-doo which has been entirely reanimated for this show except while the episode plays out with the same sort of premise the uh murders that take place are actual grisly murders and the brothers have to help try and stop it but that episode in season three has a similar setup of someone has died. It's their will reading. Scooby-Doo has been invited to the will reading because something is potentially being left to him. And they happen upon this whole thing. You've got to stay in the house for the whole night. I think a lot of the story setups okay. come from still a more um, okay. playful place than we're yes. actively trying to come in and be the no, authority on mysteries. There's a... The that's a thread that goes through it. So if you're not going to buy it on that, I'm going to argue one, I'm going to come back at you one last time. Is it not true to say that the villains are generally old white men? And is there something yes. about that? Because I feel it's like the 60s and 70s. <laughs> I mean, I know that's really bland, but if it's a black man, then that tends to be racist. And if it's a woman, why is a woman in charge of enter museum or uh, station or castle or whatever? Like it, it's one of those weird uh, diversity realities of the time that how many of those situations that require the villain yeah. would be. In that, that setup, although I think in the third episode, I think um, I, I can't remember exactly who's involved. The third episode is the diver, okay? Uh, yeah, glowing uh, green, That's glowing okay. deep sea diver, and the if I remember right, it's the diver who is actually the it's it's a diver who died, a captain mm. who is dressing up as the ghost. Everyone thought he's dead, but he's actually alive now. His wife is a witch. Exciting. And I can't remember if she's explicitly involved in the uh, fraud that's happening, but there there are not very there is not very much diversity in the show, and I think it is just out of the happenstance of the time period and the necessities of the storytelling. There, no, hmm. maybe, maybe, but even if that's the case, it's still I still think it's interesting that you've got these kids who it's, come in and overthrow that over and over and over again. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying it's it's it's, it's interesting, but is it really any is it really any commentary to say <laughs> this gang on overthrowing the black female museum curator in 1971? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> when you put it, if, that, if, if anything, that would be more commentary if they were doing that, right? <laughs> You'd be like, Scooby-Doo's so progressive, but also why does it have it out for progressive diversity? <laughs> I guess I'm just saying that's it's quite interesting that kids, you know, that, that kids grew up watching that happen over and over again. It's quite interesting. Well, they, they grew up watching that happen all over TV, didn't they? Did they? I mean, but then that's I interesting. Is it? I just, you not let me... 
<laughs> you never let me just rest on a point. I'm going to stay there. I'm not coming up with up the rest of the mountain. What, <laughs> what this conversation is developing that's interesting for me is I, yeah. I think we both quite enjoy Scooby-Doo. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you seem to be approaching Scooby-Doo from a much more interrogative I, perspective oh, of gosh, what is I, this... What, the, the, what is there to be revealed on a larger scale from this? And my perspective seems to be very much, it's it's wholesome and delightful. And isn't it fun that there's a, a spooky show that okay. was wacky? One, okay, I'm going to prove that I don't always do that. Here's one that I think is fun. Something that I really, really enjoy um, in animations is, well, there's several things. One of the things is how people eat. I just love that. Yes. Um, yep. One of the things is how people mop up a puddle or anything that's yep. spilled. But something that is um, specific to Hannah Barbera cartoons, I think, um, is the how different the painted backdrops are, which are just beautiful. Yes. And I love them to yep. the cell animation overlays. And something yes. that I really enjoy. <laughs> it's and it's very like I think when you're playing a sort of um RPG game and you're in a you go into an environment and um you can tell immediately what are the objects you're going to be able to interact with because they just have yep. a different glowing quality. You get that in Scooby Doo. So you'll get the the backdrop, but there'll be like an urn or something, and the lid yeah. on it is completely different. It's just brighter and it's it's clearly cell animation on top of an oil painting or, or some kind of mm. You know, there's a sort of archaeology to it that you, the moment that scene starts, someone is going to hide in that urn because it's an object that you can interact with in this scene. I like. Yes. That. Yeah. Um, I think. Go, go, go. Scooby Doo comes under a lot of criticism because of its low quality animation in those initial seasons because it was just, let's just keep churning it out, keep churning it out. But. It, it has created this really interesting artifact where so much of that is visible. There is so much roughness, so many small mistakes. I absolutely adore the texture of the image. This is one of the things about those original episodes of Scooby-Doo. It is such a physical memory to me. Like I can't, I can't tell you that I remember being anywhere in particular, but the actual image just has such a physicality, more so than most other cartoons I can think of because you've got all of those tiny little specks of dust and grain in amongst the cells. And sometimes you can even see those specks of dust moving as the character animation moves. And you've got the lower frame rate they were using and the recycled animation. Like, is there anything better than just watching the gang run essentially in place That's across true. a moving background That's in the true. exact same motion? Um, doodly, doodly, yeah. doodly, doodly, and running while your legs are going but you're um you're staying still and then suddenly you shoot off sometimes the vehicle does that as well the vehicle will sort yes of yeah and then shoot off yeah i love I'd, that. I'd, i would even build on your brilliance of seeing the animation or you know the bits that are going to move in a scene there are scenes where characters faces you can see the sort of seam and split in their faces i'm thinking specifically must have been in one of the episodes i looked at recently uh scooby talking and his whole mouth section has that sort of homer simpson here's a marked off section of your mouth and you can see it moving while the rest of him is almost entirely still i think that happens a lot you'll get a close-up of a face and the lips mm. will move 
and then after about 10 seconds the eyes will kind of like dart one way and then the other and and that's the only movement that you're getting yeah but it, it's mean, just so it's, brilliant it's, it makes me think of two things one, both of which are quite highbrow so i apologize one is um in uh sort of renaissance fresco <laughs> when <laughs> So when you paint a fresco, you have to paint onto wet plaster. That's the only way the paint bonds with the surface. That's that's what it means. Um, so essentially, it's like a if you think murals, if you're painting a mural, but but a kind of like you know old mural. <laughs> um, and then, but so you you have to work quite fast because you have to have wet plaster. And so you you plaster as much as you think you're going to paint that day, and then you leave a beveled edge. And then the next day, you plaster a similar amount because of the beveled edge and the way the bits of plaster overlap when you plaster them you can work out what order a fresco is painted in i've always just really liked that as a thing um i don't know what the other thing i was going to say was i don't know but yeah i just it's just very satisfying i think that's what i was gonna say there's a sort of it's a sort of truth to materials thing because nobody's pretending that this isn't an animation and and as beautiful as um as animation is now that's something i think that is lost i like the sort of analog nature of animation like i love um rhubarb and custard for instance where the because you're they're just colored in do you know rhubarb and custard uh no i don't think so so good so like Oh, so, how can you not remember rhubarb and custard? So rhubarb and custard is a cat and a dog, uh, very famous theme tune, which is like, like it's really like aggressive in your face. And they're, they're in, a, they're sort of in a void. Everything is white. Uh, you'll occasionally get a tree or something that they interact with, but they're sort of coloured in. I think Henry's cat is similar. They're coloured in. So with every move that they make, they're recolored in. And so they have this kind of texture that constantly changes. And it's, you know, it's, it's not we we couldn't have found a way to get rid of that. It's this adds to the overall texture of this animation. And to me, that's a sort of, it's almost like, it, you know, in architecture, you get that thing of truth to materials, like don't hide the girders, mm. be honest about what this building is made of. To me, that's exactly what Scooby-Doo is. And the really brilliant thing about that that I love is that then that in itself becomes a quotable thing. So um, I'm thinking of like people mimicking the way people run in Scooby-Doo, like Velma, I think particularly, like people do Velma runs, don't they? Of like your arms are sort of pumping back and forth and in a very particular way. That it becomes the kind of the language of the thing is so brilliant. The other thing it made me think about, this is a slightly separate point, but it just occurred to me that I think those kind of cartoons are the way in which children come to understand genre and what genre it is. Um, and so what we were saying before about kind of um, Abbott and Costello and Bella Lugosi, and I think there's an episode, I don't think it's in the series that we're talking about, but there's an episode later on where Vincent Price voices one of the monsters and like just peak everything, yes, please, yes, please, yes, please. It's like such yes. a kind of, this is how detective shows work, this is how horror works. And so then you have that when you, the more of that you watch, the more you understand that vocabulary and how stories are constructed. Like I, I love that aspect of it as well. So if we're, if we're mm. moving away from, here's a kind of deconstruction of what I think Scooby-Doo is, in a socio-politically or whatever, to uh, I love Scooby-Doo. I can reassure you, I definitely love Scooby-Doo. Yeah, yeah. there's an awful lot of mileage to get out of just the uh, purity of the concept 
maybe. And I think that ties back to what we were saying earlier about how the characters feel like they exist in such a transient place. There's, there was um, during that boom of let's do cartoons with familiar characters, except now they're kids. Mm. There was a pup named Scooby-Doo. I think it's that series that has them growing up in Coolsville. Okay. Like who knows where Coolsville is, but it's one of those things that when I knew that we were going to answer the question, Scooby-Doo, where are you? <laughs> the first thing my mind thought of was, well, to know where you are, you sort of have to know where you've come from. Yeah. But I don't know where Scooby-Doo's come from. There's yeah. some reference to aliens in like one of the director uh, home releases. And there's this Coolsville section. But I think maybe part of what makes Scooby-Doo work is the question, Scooby-Doo, where are you, is not answerable with a where are you coming from. Every episode turns up with the gang rocking up somewhere new. Mm. It's it's not about where Scooby it's it's not Scooby Doo where have you been? No, it's a question very much about the present, despite the fact that so much of Scooby Doo is about the existence of these reruns. Yeah, but I think also, so we're saying that it's a sort of transient void. That's where Scooby Doo is. That's how sort yes. of it's in the transient void. But I think it's a very specific intertextual fictional void there's, there's mm. a Cthulhu mythos thing going on with Scooby-Doo I think yeah I, I read I know you know this but last week I read Meddling Kids the I can never remember his name Edgar Cantaro is that the name of the author which is the kind of riffs on Scooby-Doo um it's a novel the idea of it is that the gang um solved a mystery when they were kids in a very Scooby-Doo way, unmasked the villain, but actually they've all been haunted by this particular mystery ever since. Um, and could it be that actually there was something supernatural going on? And that's, that's it's very Cthulhu mythos. They, mm, they find mm. the I won't give any spoilers, but there is a, there is a bad thing that you call from the other side. So, so and, and the only reason I'm invoking that is because, you know, we've said Famous Five, we've said, um, Archie, we've said all these different things where it comes from and I, I think that's if I think of the transient void where they exist, all of this other stuff exists in there too and it's kind of this mm. constantly overlapping Venn diagram of, and, and that's sort of what I meant about the Peter Pan thing of it, it's just this extrusion of of cultural influences, I think that's where they are, I think that's where yeah. I, I think that's my and, and, uh, yeah and I think like we've said, there's so much that went into the melting pot of what makes Scooby-Doo that it's sort of hard when you have all the right elements, it's sort of hard not to come out with a product that does withstand time a whole lot more, especially when it's so uh, child focused, you know, the characters almost play off like adults because they have the autonomy. But they're specifically framed as sort of a group of teenagers, late teenagers, riffing on the tropes of other shows like The Archie Show. Mm. And what being a teenager really meant in the late 60s and early 70s, and that kind of evolution of what a teenager is, it's definitely in the early stages of that, where I think a teenager definitely wasn't the sort of... um, nowhere near an adult that we often view them as today 
it's so easy for kids to latch onto that because the characters then stay childlike enough that they're engaging they're adult enough that they have the autonomy the mysteries are scary enough that it's almost a horror show so you feel like you get to engage with something that at times can feel off limits there's the safety net of i can play with horror knowing that there's usually an unmasking or goofiness to it shaggy and scooby providing quite a protective barrier in that yeah because of those sort of comedic shenanigans soften everything yeah and i think philosophically but fairly literally scooby-doo where are you the answer is in the void along with cthulhu maybe in a slightly less physical sense scooby-doo is at the perfect cross-section of eight years old yeah yeah because it it is just the right mix to be entertaining and scary and surprising and memorable and really ingrain itself Mm. into your memory because of all of the physical materials of the animation and the excellent character and monster designs and the repetition of enough tropes that you can take out the bits that really connect with you. Mm. I think so. I think there's also that thing of, yes, Scooby-Doo, if you're watching it as um, uh, a child, Scooby-Doo is you. But Mm. you've also, I think there's that, you know, when you're eight years old, there's nothing more exotic or glamorous than a, a young person. <laughs> and so you've, you've yep. got that kind of like, I can watch this and relate to Scooby-Doo, but I still don't have to feel like a child because I can sort of pretend that I'm in a gang with Daphne and Fred and Velma who are cool and older and, you know, probably yeah. and can drive a mystery machine. It's, it's a yes. very productive kind of lifestyle <laughs> that they lead. Like, I, I did read something today that kind of, I think one of the later series, you find out where their money's come from, and it's like Fred has inherited it. It's one of my, that's another trope. Everyone is bloody rich. Like in different seasons, I'm pretty sure in one of the more recent ones, Shaggy is the one who has a whole inheritance from a rich uncle. Scooby has definitely had an inheritance from some family member that led Scooby to having a mansion, I believe, which crops up a fair bit. Fred's been rich. It's like there is always some artificial explanation for why this gang have unlimited funds, and I love it. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, this is our main take home, right? We just like it. <laughs> it we yeah, it's it's brilliant. I think there are still avenues we could dive down. There are still questions we could answer with Scooby Doo, but but I think we've decided where Scooby Doo is. I think we, we definitely i want to do an episode on uh mystery in Corp- is it called mystery incorporated because that's uh, the a one from very recent yeah yes because yeah. that's a very different kettle of fish and yeah yes I, yeah and, and, I, I, I think this could be revisited soon several times over. but i do feel satisfied scooby-doo where are you you're in you're in a strange void and but that's okay <laughs> 